I've been thinking about roast potatoes recently. When was the last time you had one? Because I reckon the last time I had a roast potato was probably a solid 10 years ago. What, 10 wrong years ago? What? It's just like such a thing that you eat when you're young, like as a child at a bonfire night Je- party. Jen, Jen, oh, do you mean a baked potato rather than a roast potato? Oh, shit. Are we talking about different things? Jen's got a potatoes confused again. I've been awake since half past five this morning. I know, I know you're really tired, but I would say that probably you could have avoided the fulfilment of having a child by just eating loads of roast potatoes, <laughs> because that's what I've done. Standard Issue for all women. Hello, and welcome to episode 150 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Miss Mickey Noonan. Please enjoy your flight. Well, that's lovely to hear, but I, I, um, I feel like I, I would be laughing if I knew what it meant. Okay, so there was a a TUI airline flight from Birmingham to Mallorca that got itself into quite a lot of hot water and was indeed deemed dangerous because all the women who had registered as Miss when they checked in, they checked in as children, so the weight was off. Hmm. Oh, that's quite scary. Right? 38 women. Wow. I like being a Miss. I still call myself Miss. Mm. This is going to change quite soon but I still call myself Miss rather than Miz I've never taken to Miz it feels I don't know it just doesn't suit me I think it's subjective everyone should have what they want yeah I mean I use Miss I think that Miz has a place for some people but I don't feel the need to obscure the fact that I'm not married from people Mm. in fact if anything I'm quite proud of that so I am happy to use it. I mean, you don't see it that often. It makes me feel like I'm at Wimbledon, AGN, when people say Miss Hannah Dunleavy. <laughs> Mick, out of interest, are you going to be Mickey Noonan when you get married? Just to be clear, Mick, if you do change it, uh, it won't go in. I will forever call you Mickey Noonan. I'm definitely not changing Mickey. That's definitely my name. And I'm definitely not changing Noonan. But my, what do they call it? My title. Maybe I'll just become like lady or doctor. You can just do that, right? Have you ever been to the National Trust website at all? Uh, Sometimes you have to sign in for stuff. I think it must be for the press section that I had to sign into the National Trust website. And they offer you the most dizzying array of titles. I think I'm there as flight captain. (laughs) Flight commander. It's just incredible, the options that are there. Uh, Countess. Um, You can tell who the... The National Trust is expecting to open accounts there by yeah. the number of titles they offer you. That and Harrogate Theatre. When I worked at Harrogate Theatre, we had a, a dizzying array of titles as well. And because we all had accounts so we could book tickets for people, we were all like High Priestess Noon and that kind of shit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm Flight Captain Hannah Dudleavy, <laughs> and I recently discovered Lidl's famous Middle Isle. Ah, middle, little, the field of dreams. Never been there before. Heard a lot of stories about it. I don't know what this is. Nor did I, Jen. It is literally the middle aisle of Lidl. And it contains like hundreds of things that you'd never need. And then one thing that is surprisingly incredibly useful for your life and unbelievably cheap. Hence, I bought a countertop oven because I still can't get an oven delivered to my house. So I think it's designed for caravans or bedsits. But I've had a chip butty. I've made some rhubarb crumble. <laughs> I've had quiche. I've had roast potatoes. It's been amazing. No more boiled pizza for no. Flight Commander Dunleavy. Pretty much every person's house that I've been to since this whole thing started, I've just got roast potatoes, 
please, if you could knock up some roast potatoes. I'd be in the fucking next livid minutes. if you just turned up at my house and demanded <laughs> roast potatoes. I'm Jen Offord and I have not missed the news. I don't know if you're aware of this, Jen, but just FYI, Prince Philip died. I had no idea. Never, not heard that at all. Fucking hell, really? <laughs> really? They've kept it quiet. Yeah, they must have done. Sorry, we should have put a trigger warning just in case uh, someone is hearing this for the first time on this podcast. Yeah. Later on, I chat to Natalie Morris about identity, the census and her new book, Mixed Other. I'm washing some of my family's dirty laundry in public as I chat to Professor Rebecca Prober about the history of divorce and if the prevalence of bigamy in my family means it was actually a lot more common in the past than we thought. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Come on, (laughs) Nana, you lawbreaker. While you're washing your family's dirty laundry, is it a a standard washing machine or a countertop washing machine you got from Little? (laughs) That's that's what I just washed my socks in. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about the unstoppable rise of Rachel Blackmore, and in Rated or Dated, we're roller skating gratuitously into the 90s rom com The Truth About Cats and Dogs. But first, a truffling Tory piggy, the quest for reliable news and a variety of risks. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. It's been a busy week, so I just wanted to check. Everybody knows Prince Philip died? What? Great, because if anything, there's not been enough coverage. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have literally never found myself wondering, what the fuck has David Cameron been up to since he weaseled his way into office, then slunk off with a jolly tune after taking a massive Brexit-shaped shit on the briefing room table? Not until this week, anyway, when it transpired that, in fact, he did not have his trotters up in Nice after all, as previously suggested by one Mr Danny Dyer. In fact, (laughs) it turns out he's been very busy on the blower and down the boozer with all sorts of government ministers. Well, what's wrong with that? I hear absolutely no one ask. They're probably just his mates, right? They probably just get together to talk about the japes they had at Eton College and how much they hate poor people. Ha ha ha! Right? (laughs) Well! Not if he was doing it on behalf of a company, Greensill Capital, for example, run by a man called Lex Greensill, a former unpaid advisor to Call Me Dave Cameron when he was Prime Minister, when they worked on a policy to help small firms get bills paid faster, which also directly benefited Greensill Capital, but I'm sure that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Anyway, Dave worked for him for a while after his political career ended, Not for free, just FYI, and it turns out there are quite a few favours he sort of wanted government to do for him, like provide Greensill Capital with emergency funding. He also had a drink with Matt Hancock to discuss a new NHS payment scheme in 2019, it has emerged, and there has to be a reason to go for a pint with Matt Hancock, I guess. (laughs) Sound dodgy? Unbelievably, it is not. The latter part, I mean, not in a legal sense anyway, as former Prime Ministers are only legally prohibited from lobbying government for two years after they have ceased to be in office. Fucked off. (laughs) After they have fucked off to Nice and put their trotters up. Quite right. Though Dave conceded last week that perhaps he ought to have gone through formal channels to chat to his old pals. He was actually only helping out because of a material benefit for UK businesses at a challenging time, largely. Okay, cool, I can buy that. 
I can't. <laughs> but what about Greensill's influence of UK government? He actually wasn't a political appointee, says Dave. Just there to drive government efficiency. And we know how much a Tory administration values efficiency, don't we? Yeah, I mean, fucking hell. It's depressing that it's not surprising, I think. That's I know. the... It surprises me that I still have the capacity not to be surprised by stuff because it is outrageous. Do you think Johnson's paid for this to all come up now so that he doesn't actually look as bad as Cameron? And we're just reminded of how shit Cameron actually was as prime minister as well. He is my least favourite of all the uh, all our recent prime ministers, David Cameron. He is the one I hate. So I, I suppose in many ways I saw this and I was like, yes, I knew it. I knew he was the worst one. Dirty little piggy wiggy. The thing that I think about most, like, apart from obviously how despicable it all is, but again, I'm not really surprised by how despicable it is, especially considering that Matt Hancock has literally just been found to have, like, given loads of fucking contracts away. Unlawfully, I believe the word is. I just imagine how fucking pleased Matt Hancock must have been when David Cameron approached him for a drink. That's the thing I keep coming back to, just the glee in his little heart. Oh, David Cameron wants to have a drink with me, oh. Ace. I've got a question for you. When your face is as naturally smug as Dave Cameron's, how can you tell when he's genuinely smug about something? Yeah, I mean, I can't believe I actually put some thought into that. (laughs) (laughs) When it would have just been easier to say, I don't know. Follow-up question. What percentage of his palms are sweat? Anyway, (laughs) let's move on to something less disgusting. Women, how are your blood clots doing? How have they been since, checks notes, the 60s? No, really, we've totes cared all along. So went the cry as a whole load of men finally had their eyes open to one of the very many risks that come with taking the hormonal contraceptive pill. Hello, free love. Hello also, nausea, weight gain, mood shifts, the tenderest of tits, an elevated risk of blood clots. Mick, I kind of wish you'd read that unbelievably quickly like they do in those adverts (laughs) when they're trying to say anal leakage so fast that you won't actually hear what it was that they said, that you'll just go, was that anal? And then it'll be gone. (laughs) Was it anal and something pleasant? They went too quick. I don't know. Hello, also nausea, wego, mooshift, the tenderest of tits and elevated risk of blood clots. Excellent. Also, turns out the free love bit actually benefited men more and came with a load of caveats for women, but that's a different same old story. Anyway, blood clots and the pill were in the news because the European Medicines Agency found a plausible link between the Oxford slash AstraZeneca vaccine and rare types of blood clotting, which the UK's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which I will call MHRA from now on because that is a mouthful, estimates may happen in one in 100,000 young adults. By that, I mean under 30 who get the vaccine. By the middle of last week, according to the MHRA, there had been 79 cases of the rare blood clots and very sadly, 19 deaths. Suddenly, everyone and his dog gave a shit about the risk of blood clots. The MHRA quickly fell in line with Europe and the UK's Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation in recommending that healthy people under 30 who were at low risk of COVID should, where possible, be offered an alternative COVID vaccine to the AstraZeneca jab. And I think rightly so. More on that in a moment. First, it's worth pointing out that, according to a 2015 study in the British Medical Journal, on average, five to seven women in every 10,000 who are using a contraceptive pill will develop a blood clot in 12 months, making it a substantially higher risk than the AstraZeneca vaccine. 
I've got to be clear here, I'm not at all saying that means the AstraZeneca risk should be dismissed as, and this is why I think it's right that an alternative is being offered as much as possible, it is a bit apples and oranges comparing the risk of getting any type of blood clot with the pill to getting these rare types of blood clots with the vaccine. But that's the nature of medicine and it's the nature of risks. I can only speak for myself, of course, and I am way over 30, but I'm still eagerly awaiting my vaccine, AstraZeneca or Pfizer. Get either one of those in my arms, stat, please and thanks. Because it's not just about me. Vaccination looks like it will help prevent symptomless infections and viral spread and therefore benefit all those I meet and shit me, I have missed hugs. It's what's known as a tolerable risk, isn't it? One of those where we seek to reap the benefits and so we mitigate the downsides. Like how from the ages of 16 to 41, I regularly took the contraceptive pill, despite nausea, weight gain, mood shifts, the tenderest tits, the tenderest, oh, I cannot, I could not be an American advertiser. The tenderest of tits is very hard to say fast and elevated risk of blood clots because I didn't want to get pregnant. And that responsibility still very much lies with women. And I did want to ease my screaming PMDD, which remains massively underdiagnosed because, well, women's health, eh? Pah. Oh, and to be fair, I did want to get laid. Tolerably laid. <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. I went for, you say, every man and his dog. I actually went for a walk with a friend of mine and his dog at the weekend. Oh, good. What was his opinion? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was talking about how I had uh, another attack of that thing where I get really dizzy. And the doctors have done loads of tests on me and they don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And I was telling him about it and he said, well, you should ask for more. Like, that's not a sufficient answer. We don't know what it is. And I said... Well, yeah, but it could be anything. It could be something hormonal. I said, and doctors don't really care about women's medicine, to which he gave me one of those sideways looks that suggested that he thought I was taking me feminist principles too far. bit later on in the conversation, we talk about the blood clot risk with AstraZeneca. And I said, well, yeah, but like I was at risk of having a blood clot when I was on the pill. So why would I like worry about the risk of the blood clot here? And he said... Oh, yeah, that's a good point, because they didn't do any research on the pill. And I was like, can I refer you to the earlier part of the fucking conversation that we had in which I said people don't care about women's medicine? So over in America, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer charged with the murder of George Floyd last May in Minneapolis, has entered its third week. Now, while at first glance it might seem like an open and shut case, that is precisely what makes it complicated so, am I able to give you a detailed account here now? Of course not. So, mm -hmm. rather than attempt to do that, I thought I might take a look at how the rest of the media is covering the trial and see if I can suggest some people to you who are covering it in a comprehensive and unbiased way. Ha! <laughs> First thing to say here is, and some of you probably already know this, the US media isn't restricted by the same sorts of laws that govern how trials are covered here in the UK. Juries are sequestered, which means the media is allowed to say or print pretty much anything without fear of prejudicing them. And whether you're watching Fox News or CNN, it's worth bearing this in mind. Media organisations have no requirement to hide their biases in court reporting. And personally, I think the cause of justice is worse served by it. Definitely. It's mental. <laughs> it really is. Over here, it's worth pointing out that The Guardian, which I'm guessing is probably the new source of choice for some, if not many, of our listeners, is reporting Chauvin's trial from its US office. 
for mm. better or worse. And again, I'm going to say worse. Mm. It explains why its two articles over the weekend were a roundup of events that put as much emphasis on what people who weren't in court were saying as those who were actually part of the trial. And then a think piece on, quote, excited delirium, something which may or may not form part of Chauvin's defence. Who knows? Well, given Chauvin's defence starts this week, maybe you, future listener, will know. But at present, on Monday the 12th of April 2021, no one actually does. If you're looking for a more old-fashioned, just-the-facts approach, the doggedly both-sides-get-a-say BBC appears to be sticking to reporting the trial as a trial, which is welcome. However, it is still worth saying that unless you plan to watch the trial in its entirety, the only way you're going to find out everything that is happening is to read as many different news sources as possible. Mm -hmm. Because the Chauvin verdict is going to be the most consequential to America since O.J. Simpson was allowed to walk away from two murder charges. So the best way to be prepared for a potentially bad result is to inform yourself. I rest my case. Hang on, the BBC are going to report on something other than Prince Philip. Why would they be reporting on Prince Philip, Jen? Has something happened to him? (laughs) Would anyone like some good news? Yes, please, Jen. There were some big wins for women at the BAFTAs last weekend, including Chloe Zhao, who won Best Director for Nomadland, making her only the second female director ever to win in the 53 years of the category's history. How fucking mad is that? Anyway, this isn't sexism of the week. This is a good story, apparently. A good news story. The first, in case you were wondering slash couldn't remember, was, of course, Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker in 2009. In fairness, a woman had a decent shot at it because four of the six nominees for the award this year were women. Tip of the hat to her lead actor, Frances McDormand, who we are all big fans of at Standard Issue for her Best Actress win. Oh, yeah. Best British film went to... (laughs) (laughs) went to Promising Young Woman, directed and written by Emerald Fennell, who also won Best Screenplay. And big congratulations to 18-year-old Bookie Backright, star of Rocks and one of two female nominees in the Rising Star category, and indeed, the winner. Hooray! More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we head to the pages of The Sun newspaper. (laughs) And despite me using that last word very loosely, it's not actually the sun in my target. I know, for once in this section, we are in fact surprised. I mean, hold on to that particular hat because we're back to normal in three, two... The military's top judge has blamed (laughs) rape in the armed forces on thoroughly good people drinking too much booze. Ah, there we are. A report in The Sun, and I'd like to be clear at this point that this is the only article in The Sun I've read since I left home at 17 detailed how Judge Advocate General Alan Large was facing calls to resign over comments made at a select committee hearing on the Armed Forces Bill when questioned over the poor conviction rate in military tribunals for rapes and sexual assaults. Military sex attacks, now there's a phrase stolen from the sun, isn't it? Military sex attacks have reached a record high, with 550 rapes and or sexual assaults reported in the military over the five years from 2015 to 2019. Most victims are women, but men have reported 70 alleged sexual assaults and eight rapes. Judge Advocate General Large said, Our service people are thoroughly good people, but they drink too much, something goes wrong, and they end up in court. It's a mystery. Yeah, Yeah. that familiar passive voice of sexual assault. 
to clarify that something refers to rape and sexual assault and that goes wrong very much appears to mean for those thoroughly good people doing the raping and assaulting who then for reasons seemingly beyond largest comprehension find themselves in court. Now, I've been so shit-faced, I've puked in a bin surrounded by bouncers and I was once found asleep in a hedge. <laughs> but I have never raped or sexually assaulted anyone because booze is neither reason nor excuse. Listener, Large has not resigned. Yeah, where's that sexism surprise hat now? Back in the wardrobe gathering dust, which, in my opinion, is where a lot of the stale male judges should be too. In protest, I'm going to change my name to Judge Advocate General. Hannah Dunleavy. Seconded. Aloud. How was that only reported by the fucking Sun? Why wasn't that on the BBC? Oh, sorry. That's why it was on the BBC website. <laughs> uh, I did check on the BBC website and apparently, guys, Prince Philip is dead. No. Hang on, I've got a breaking alert coming on my phone. I'm joined by... Natalie Morris, journalist and author of the new book, Mixed Other, Explorations of Multiraciality in Modern Britain. So, Natalie, we are here to talk about your new book. I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about, I guess, really what compelled you to write this book. Mixed Other, like it says in the title, it's an exploration of, of being mixed race today in, in the UK. And I think what compelled me to write it was the fact that the conversation around being mixed and multiraciality is so often stilted and lacking in any nuance. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings, misrepresentations and problematic and stereotypical ideas that are still being presented in the mainstream as a way to talk about being mixed. You know, I was getting tired of, of seeing these really basic reductive takes on mixed raceness that flattened so many of the issues and and kind of wasn't representative of of my own experiences and a lot of the experiences of the people I knew who were also mixed so I just wanted to to get a better wider more nuanced picture of of the realities of being mixed and the, the complexities within that because there are lots of you know, inherent contradictions. There are lots of joys as well. I think often the conversation goes very much down the route of, of difficulties and struggles and confusions and all of the, you know, being caught between two worlds. And I, I wanted to look at, at that, but also the other side of it as well and, and show that there's so much more to this conversation. At the beginning of the book, there's a note on the terminology. I do think sometimes people struggle a bit around race to figure out, what the right words they should be using are because also like it all comes down to preference as well different people prefer different things you know you've explained in the book why you've used the term mix and I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that yeah absolutely I mean that note at the beginning of the book is definitely kind of a caveat for my future self to save myself future embarrassment it's like a get out of jail free card essentially for when in you know in 10 years time we look back and I'm like, oh God, I can't believe I was using those words. Because the thing with language, particularly around race, is that it's constantly evolving and it needs to be. And that's a good thing. But it means that we we can't always get it right. Um, like you say, it's down to preference, but it's also very much down to the specific time and place that you're living in. So I've gone for mixed, consciously trying to not say mixed race 
which is a new thing for me and really comes down to this idea of, of trying to, in a very small way, disrupt the use of, of the word race and the idea of race as some kind of like essential biological fact. So it's a very small rebellion against that, but it's my way of, of trying to disrupt that narrative. I also look at the other the other terms that I could have settled on. For example, there's biracial, um, dual heritage, multi-heritage. I think the reason I went with mixed is because in this context of talking about being in the UK and British, that is the most commonly used terminology biracial to me feels much more American also with biracial and dual heritage they're very specifically about about two things so it's limiting in that sense because some of the people I speak to have more than two different elements to their heritage my daughter is mixed obviously we had the census the other day and uh and we I had to tick the mixed other box for her because she is more than two different ethnicities and and I think that's an interesting point in itself and, and one that you'd make in the book when people think about mixed people there does tend to be a focus on one specific type of mixed which is black afro caribbean and white mm-hmm. and one of the points that you kind of make in the book is that mixed refers to a much much broader spectrum than that i mean obviously we've just done the census now so all of the figures that we're working on are wildly out of date at this point but in terms of what we know at the moment mixed black caribbean and white british is the most commonly recorded mix of ethnicities in in the UK at the moment and that's that's the mix that I am so in a way it's a privilege to have never had to thought about that so when you know in the mainstream conversation when people are talking about somebody being mixed they tend to be talking about someone like me someone who looks like me someone who has the kind of experiences and backgrounds that I have but yeah through my research for the book I spoke to more than 50 people in the space of a year with all different mixes and all of these kind of progressive and interesting and important conversations that are being had about the experiences of mixed people are excluding this huge chunk of people because these conversations are frequently about being mixed with whiteness. I think so often these conversations centre around whiteness. We don't seem to be able to, to take whiteness out of the equation so I found that when I spoke to people who are mixed without whiteness their experience is completely different they don't have all these same kind of discussions they're not placed in the same kinds of boxes they're just seen as other because once you remove whiteness from the conversation people aren't interested in the same way you're just oh you're just you're just not white and and you're all just lumped together so when you look at the census there are four boxes you can tick which is you know white and black Caribbean white and Asian and then right at the bottom there is mixed other which is every other you know combination that you can imagine which is endless an endless amount of combinations but they have one box that they have to share and it's completely vague and I think what I'm trying to do with the book is to crack open these boxes and be like let's have a look at all of the different experiences within that and the many things that that do tie us together so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the stereotypes that you alluded to earlier. There is this view that mixed people are sort of like almost a bit tragic, that they're like shunned mm. by both sides of their heritage. And, you know, most of the people you spoke to didn't have this kind of conflict of identity. That is definitely a pervasive and like damaging stereotype about mixed people that, you, you know, you're not 
enough of one thing, you're not enough of the other, you're rejected from both sides. And that in turn, that that leads to this crisis, this not knowing who you are, not knowing where you belong. Um, and it's a crisis of identity and a crisis of, of belonging as well. And in, in many ways, the work that I've done in the book really pushes back against this. And the, the, on, in terms of the anecdotal individual accounts, the people that I spoke to, they just it was just the opposite for so many of them. And I spoke to a real cross-section of people from with all different kinds of backgrounds from, you know, different ages from all over the country. And overwhelmingly, they reported feeling not as though they didn't have a home in either camp, but that they had a home in both camps, which is just completely flips that narrative on its head and gives it a much more positive, welcoming, affirming implication, which I think is, is just so great and is often ignored and I think it's because people like the sensationalist stories when it comes to being mixed they like the stories where someone's experienced racism from from one of their parents or from from a family member like we've like we've just seen with what's going on with Megan and the speculation about a member of the royal family talking about Archie's skin color people love those stories and it, I'm not saying that they don't happen they absolutely do and there, and there were people in the book who who spoke about that struggle and, and have experienced problems with with feeling like they don't know where they belong but there are two things about that first of all it's, it's nothing essential or inherent in being mixed that means you're you come into the world and you immediately don't know where you belong like that is something that's again taught and socialized and very dependent on context your family your life experiences where you live your what time period you're growing up in all of these different factors influence how you're going to feel about yourself and your where you belong and secondly it's not always a permanent state of being either so a lot of the people I spoke to said that they had periods growing up where they felt that where they felt confused where they felt like they had something to prove a lot of the time. They felt like they, you know, had to prove their blackness or they had to prove their Asianness or whatever it is in their specific situation. And they they, you know, had that kind of insecurity about their identity. But almost everybody who said that they experienced that also told me about how they came through that and how they came out of it stronger and understanding more about themselves and their family often with the help of both sides of their family and the wider communities from their you know minority heritage you know obviously I think about this from the context of me being white and my daughter being mixed and I have worried is that something that will bother her as she gets older you know I mean she looks exactly like her dad she you know she looks so much like him like his mum but in terms of just you know I guess even just her skin tone will that bother her growing up that she doesn't think that she looks either like me or like her dad it's funny what you say though about not looking like either of your parents even though you do and I think that's something that I've I've definitely experienced, and I, I talk about this in the book, how I like, I, I when I was younger, like like your daughter, I looked exactly like my dad, like like a copy-paste version of my dad. It was ridiculous. As I've gotten older, I, I look a lot more like my mum. And it's interesting because, in a way, I'm I'm always kind of allowed to look like my dad because he's black. I'm black. I, feel, I see myself as black and mixed. Um, and society will, you know, see me as black, probably more than they would see me as mixed. So there's this kind of like acceptance that I look like my dad. Whereas now that I'm starting to really look like my mum, there's this weird disconnect for some people. And it frustrates me that people can't always see that because 
to me, I'm like, we look exactly the same. Like I saw a picture of her when she was about my age at Notting Hill Carnival. And I'm like, that is literally my face apart from the skin tone. And that's literally it. But there's always been this thing where, when my mum was out with me and my sister when she was younger, and this is, you know, the 90s, early 90s, people would be like, Who's, whose babies are those? Are you looking after someone's kids? And there's this, there's this thing where it's not assumed that, that we are together because, and I think it's because whiteness is exclusive, whereas no other races seem to be in the same way. So whiteness, I always find, is this protected space. I, can ne- I could never be seen as white, um, it's not something I've ever wanted or ever needed to be, but I, I just know that I, I couldn't be, whereas I can be seen and I am seen as black. When I think about the fact that I don't know why that is when I'm literally, I have as much blackness in me as I do whiteness, whereas that is an exclusive space that I'm not allowed to be part of and blackness isn't. And I think that's something, again, that I've seen across the board with everyone who has minority heritage and white heritage. My uncle by marriage is Mm -hmm. Pakistani. So my cousins Mm -hmm. are mixed. And whenever we go somewhere and people are like, oh, how how do you guys know each other? We're like, we're cousins. Blows people's minds, honestly. Blank faces. Yeah, they're just like, (laughs) we've had people genuinely ask us like three times in a row, so how 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 are you related? We're, like, we're cousins. <laughs> I think there's just an expectation that you're going to explain yourself all the time, and people are entitled to an explanation about why you're here, why you look like you do, wh- who you're related to, why essentially people are asking you why are you brown or why do you not look like everyone else? And there's this kind of like I don't know. Uh, people are really brazen with it and are just like. I deserve to know you have to tell me and it's like why do I have to tell you why do you need to know that about me before you before you ask my name before you know anything else about me it's like why is that the first thing that's so important I think that's something that that happens to me a lot and to everyone I spoke to was basically like yeah when people are like no where are you where are you really from you know and they're they're basically asking what are you it's like a dehumanizing thing where they're like your face doesn't fit in my brain so you have to give me an explanation as to why. And that can be really annoying because it's like this instant othering, yeah. in a sense. They're literally, the, one of the first things they will say to you is basically a coded way of saying, oh, I don't think you belong here. Tell me why you don't belong here. And it's the entitlement that, yeah. that annoys me. So you have mentioned her already. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Meghan Markle, who is obviously mm. mixed, and the kind of reception that she has had in the UK. I wondered if, if you felt that she faced a specific kind of racism because of her mixed heritage. That's a really interesting question. I think racism is racism. Like, if, if you're being treated a certain way because you're not white. I think that that is what was happening to Megan. I think the interesting thing about what happened with her related to her mixedness is the way that the the tide changed on her so abruptly and completely and quickly. So if you cast your mind back to 2018, before the wedding, um, and she was kind of she was being lauded as this like this beautiful, amazing emblem of hope and this you know the, this progressive symbol of the future of of uh, of the monarchy and, and what and how great we are at accepting this you know mixed race princess as as, the, as she was being called to, into this you know elitist institution and that was that was really widespread seen as a positive. People were excited about her and excited about the wedding. 
And then almost instantly after that, I think, I don't re- I don't know enough about it to say, you know, what triggered it, but it almost felt as though the moment people realized she wasn't going to necessarily play ball, she wasn't going to stick to the script and be their, you know, quiet, obedient minority or their quiet, obedient princess, like, like some of the other royals are, I think that's when it, it turned on her and it turned so quickly. And I think what's interesting is how, how ready everybody was to change the narrative on her like that. And for the, the headlines and the coverage became very, very racialized and pointed and racist in a lot of cases very quickly. And we hadn't really had kind of a sniff of that before that. And I think that that is indicative of the kind of the kind of like precarious privilege that you have as a mixed race person like Megan. So when you're mixed with white and you have this proximity to whiteness and you look like Megan does and you're beautiful and you have and you're able to, you know, conform to certain standards of Eurocentric beauty. She, you know, with her straight hair and her light skin tone and all of those things, she's ticking all those boxes. So she's accepted and she's allowed into those spaces. And I, I, you know, at the time I thought to myself, if she wasn't mixed with white, if she was, if she had darker skin, if she was black, monoracial black, would she have been allowed to be having this big wedding? Would, would Harry have been allowed to marry her? Who knows? I think it would have been a very different story very much earlier on. So she kind of had this privilege to be let into these spaces and given this position and shown as kind of a representation of of progress but that privilege is incredibly precarious and she really doesn't have much power over that and it can be taken away at the drop of a hat and I think that is what's happened here and that it's been almost the, the rug has been pulled out from under her that privilege they're like nope you don't get that anymore actually you're just not white now and you're not white enough and we're not happy about this and then she's subject to all of the same kind of racism I mean, not necessarily, I don't think the same kind of racism is if, I think it would have been a lot worse if she was darker skinned or if she was black, but still, still experiencing racism. One of the things that I thought was interesting in the news recently was Mm. the row that erupted over Candice Brathwaite and Rochelle Humes. For listeners, if they're not aware, Candice Brathwaite is, she's a black woman and Rochelle, obviously the, the TV presenter and former member of the Saturdays, who is mixed race woman. And Candice Brathwaite has been talking for years and years and years about sort of racism in maternity services and the fact that black women are five times more likely than white women to die in childbirth and and all of yeah. the harrowing statistics around that it turned out not to be the case but it was kind of in she initially thought because she'd been in conversations with a different production company about a similar mm-hmm. kind of documentary that she had discarded basically in favor of rochelle humes who was going to yeah. front this documentary mm-hmm. instead a she's mixed she's not black she gave birth to all of her children in like private hospitals in many many ways she was less appropriate for the role than Candice Brathway and a huge row erupted over this which kind of saw Mm. I thought slightly regrettably but I'm also aware that it's not really my place to have an opinion on this but like black women and mixed race women kind of pitted against each other which I thought was a bit of a shame but also could totally see where people were coming from in that clearly she was not the right woman for the job if you had to choose. But then who is, who is to blame for that? Who, you know, 
it's in my view it's the tv production companies who seem to think that you can't that a white audience will not be able to relate to something fronted by a black woman basically Mm -hmm. and so they have to get a mixed race woman in because she's like white enough in inverted commas yeah completely completely i think i mean yeah it always makes me really sad when when debates like this erupt because i think like you say the wrong people get pitted against each other kind of get caught in the crossfire and when really the people who are kind of at fault here like you say are the people creating the content the producers and the people making those decisions about who gets to have a voice in these spaces and who doesn't and i think it is this what's really damaging is this constant privileging of of mixed race and lighter skinned black women over darker skinned black women and monoracial black women and i think that is a symptom of this the issue like you say a symptom of colorism which is just you know another form of racism and also it just means that when we see things that seem progressive when we have things like you know Rochelle be fronting this documentary which is about a really important issue and should be being made it undermines it and it means that what's really happening is that erasure of of darker skinned and monoracial minorities is is continuing and and this relates to so many other things just the kind of glorification of of mixed race people as more more beautiful or you know being fetishized being put on adverts disproportionately you'll see mixed women plastered everywhere all over social media all over adverts tv adverts um, but you don't see black women in the same way uh, so what appears on the surface to be this kind of progressive forward-thinking representational thing where it's like oh great diversity look we've got we've got brown faces is actually not helpful it's actually problematic and damaging because erasure is still happening black people are still being left at the bottom of the pile the only reason people like Rochelle and Megan and other mixed people in the public eye are being elevated to these positions is because of their proximity to whiteness and that palatability that you referenced the fact that they're not too black they're diverse but not something that's unrecognizable unfamiliar or something that's gonna make people think that it's something they can't recognize and that's the the crux of the matter really is that ultimately without diversity for everyone and representation for everyone but more than that actually involving people in those conversations and having them involved in these programs like people like Candice and and many other people who've been sidelined in, in lots of other debates we're never going to get to the place we need to be so natalie mixed other is published on the 15th of april and available to buy i presume from all good bookshops which will be open by the time the book is published so you yes, can go into yes. a bookshop and buy it what else are you up to at the moment anything else you can also catch me and my hot takes on twitter i'm at nmoz or you can find me right for metro.co.uk most of the time. Natalie, thank you so much for chatting to me. No worries, thank you. Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mix had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column 
problem. So this has worked out rather well. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by Professor Rebecca Probert, who lectures in family law at Exeter University. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. It's a pleasure. We are here to talk about a section I'm going to term my family and other bigamists. What I've learned from my family history could probably teach us quite a lot about the lives of women 100 years ago. So that's what I'm here to ask you about. One of my great grandmothers, 1925. She's from Ireland originally. She's Catholic. She's poor. She's living in Nottingham. She's married and she has three children and her husband runs off with another woman. Before we talk about what she did do, I thought maybe we could talk about what her options actually were. Because I know the law changed in 1923 with regards to divorce. Yeah, so, so 1923 is important piece of legislation because it equalises the grounds for divorce. Before that, husbands could divorce wives on the basis of their adultery, but wives could only divorce their husbands if they could show what was called aggravated adultery. So adultery plus cruelty, desertion, bigamy, incest, bestiality, sodomy or rape. Wowzers. Yeah. What happened in 1923 is that wives could divorce husbands on the basis of adultery alone without having to show one of those additional factors. Before 1923, husbands were always in the majority of petitioners for divorce, understandably, because it was so much harder for women. After 1923, women become the majority of petitioners for divorce. And that's a pattern that's remained ever since, apart from a few years during wartime. Desertion by itself, significantly, Mm. isn't a ground for divorce at this stage. That's incredible. Okay, so by 1925, my grandmother could have divorced. I mean, that seems pretty clear. But given she has no money, was that a pie-in-the-sky idea to suggest that that was actually an option that was available to her? Well, for people who had absolutely no money, there was something called the poor person's procedure. So an early form of legal aid, essentially, that would help you to, to fund a divorce. And by the 1920s, divorce is becoming a little bit more accessible than it was previously, because before the 1920s, you could only get a divorce from the High Court in London. So you had all the costs of travel to London, and it would have been costly. And yeah, before the 1920s, you can see a real geographical difference in who's petitioning for divorce. But from the 1920s, it was possible to get divorces in various assized towns around the country. So this did actually reduce the costs and make it more accessible. So it wasn't a a ludicrous idea that she would have been able to obtain a divorce. But divorce is still relatively rare. We're talking a few thousand cases a year. I suppose you need someone to tell you that that's the case as well. You need to have the information. I mean, she could read and write. A generation before in my family, they couldn't, but she could. But nonetheless, I suppose with a change that was so recent, I wonder how that information was got out there to women that this this was an option for them. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. For so long, it's been so difficult and so inaccessible that people don't necessarily realise that it's changed. 
Okay, so they were Catholics, which does also open up another possibility that I don't, again, I don't actually believe was a possibility, but perhaps you could tell me how hard that would have been. And that would be to seek an annulment. Now, annulments are tricky. (laughs) (laughs) And we need to distinguish between those that are granted by a civil court and those that are granted by a religious tribunal of some kind. So both are important, but for different reasons. So if you get an annulment from a civil court, it is as if the marriage has never existed and both parties are free to marry again. If the annulment's granted by a religious tribunal, that doesn't have any impact on the legal status of the marriage. So it doesn't entitle the parties to marry again. Its significance is if there is also a legal divorce. So without an annulment granted by the Catholic Church, even though you could remarry in the eyes of the law, you can't remarry in the Catholic Church. Mm. But if you get a legal divorce and a Catholic annulment, then you can remarry legally in the Catholic Church. Annulment was largely to deal with situations where the marriage never got off the ground it was never consummated not a situation where people have been married for a while and have three children together yeah absolutely i mean in that situation there's there's probably no ground for annulment whatsoever you know there are certain facts that make a marriage void automatically if there's a prior existing marriage if you're within the prohibited degrees if one of you is underage or if you haven't complied with certain key formalities and there's also certain facts that make a marriage voidable if you've been forced into it or you're one of these incapable of consummating it but yeah if you've had three children I think we can pretty much knock out yeah so what my grandma actually did was meet somebody else and marry them that's actually not entirely new information to me it was joked about in our family for a long time okay question What would the repercussions have been for her if she'd been found out? And I suppose the repercussions for the children of that marriage, even though I would say that my great-granddad was well aware that she was married to somebody else. My first question is, when did she remarry? She remarried about three years later. Right, okay. In London. Ah, now that's interesting. The reason I asked about when she remarried is that there's a defence in the statute that if you've been separated for seven years and you've got no reason to believe the other person was alive during that time, that's a defence to bigamy. Now, that doesn't make any difference to the status of the second family. Your marriage is void and the children are illegitimate. But it does make a difference to whether you're liable to prosecution for bigamy. There's also another defence that the courts have established, which is that if you genuinely believe your first spouse has died, that is also a defence. And I'm kind of detecting that she wouldn't... (laughs) No, no, she would have known he was still alive. Absolutely, she would have known he was still alive. And on that, the courts didn't just accept your say-so on that point. Because there were quite a few people who tried it on and said, oh, yes, I, I, I believe my, my wife was dead. So technically, she, she could then have been prosecuted for, for bigamy. Under the Offences Against the Person Act of 1861, she would potentially, the, the maximum sentence stipulated by the statute is up to seven years in prison. However, 
virtually no one was sentenced to seven years by this time. The kinds of cases that were regarded as aggravated cases of bigamy that might be getting, you know, four, five years in prison were ones that involved deception, financial exploitation, and often the abandonment of the the second spouse. So so people who aren't really entering into a, a genuine marriage, but are kind of using bigamy strategically to fleece people. Women tended to receive lower sentences than men, and women who had remarried after being abandoned by their husbands were usually treated pretty sympathetically. So had she been prosecuted, we're probably talking about a few days rather than Oh, years. really? Yeah, so there's a um, number of cases from similar period where women are getting four days in prison. I find that both a huge relief and also a little bit surprising because historically the law has tended to treat women who transgress so much harder than men, regardless of whether or not their absence would be of greater damage to the children. I mean, we still have that argument today, don't we, about jailing mothers? That really goes to the heart of how bigamy was was conceptualised as a criminal offence. In the 18th century, it's seen very much as a crime against the institution of marriage. And men and women are pretty much treated just as harshly as each other. By the 19th century, it's starting to be seen as a crime against the second spouse. And so there's a real difference between the harm to the second wife as opposed to the second husband. To put bluntly, men are not seen as being harmed by entering into a void marriage, whereas women are, particularly if they haven't had any prior sexual experiences. Sometimes in the 19th century, it seems as if the the second wife is on trial because the council are kind of investigating her prior sexual history. Because, you know, if she's not been chased before this void marriage, then the harm to her is seen as so much less. Which brings me to the second big me that happens, which is that my great-grandmother's first husband, who he actually ran off with, was her younger sister. And they married four or five years later, went on to have children. Now, again, she would have been absolutely aware that he was still married to her sister. There's no way that she wouldn't be. So next question, what were the repercussions again, Finn, in that situation? Because he has literally abandoned the first family and married somebody else. And, And secondly, I suppose, she was possibly quite unusual because in a lot of situations... Bigamy is perceived as a guy who's got two families on the go at the same time. And so the woman has been conned, has had the wool pulled over her eyes. And that wasn't the case in this scenario. What were the repercussions of that whole shit show that was going on still in Nottingham B? Somebody who knowingly enters into a bigamous marriage, the the spouse of the, the bigamist, can be charged with aiding and abetting a criminal. And aiding and abetting potentially carries the same sentence as the main offence. Now, this, of course, is a, is a really complicated one because the fact that she knows would be seen as mitigating the, the sentence normally. 
But the fact that she's the sister might be seen as an aggravating factor. Um, I think it was by my my great-grandma for a long while, to be honest. I mean, it's interesting to note that even if your great-grandmother had divorced her husband for running off with her younger sister, they still couldn't have got legally married. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, marriage to a deceased wife's sister had been prohibited in the 19th century, but was legalised in 1907. But marriage to your divorced wife's sister was still prohibited until 1960. Did it get swept up in some idea that it was, I suppose, incestuous? It's not, it's not yeah. incestuous, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, you know, the idea is that husband and wife were one flesh, and so you were prohibited from marrying your husband's brother in the same way that you'd be prohibited from marrying your, your own brother. For the many women that didn't know who married a cad, how were their lives after this was uncovered? That marriage, I assume, was just voided. Those children became illegitimate. Would that husband have had responsibility to support her still or would, would that have evaporated along with the marriage? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The marriage would have been void. Any children are illegitimate. And so the the bigamist husband doesn't have any responsibilities to support her at this stage, but he does have responsibilities to support the children because that doesn't depend on the validity of the marriage. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Something at least. Good, yes. Okay, now this brings me to the third and final outbreak of bigamy that happened in my family in the 1920s, which is their brother, or one of their brothers. There were seven children born in that family, and three of them were bigamists. The third one, he married in Ireland. I can find... No record of them having any children. He then moved to England, married again, and had children. Aside from not finding any records of any divorce, I have traced his first wife and discovered that she had another partner, had several children with them, but didn't marry until six months after her first husband died, which suggests to me that they never divorced and she was waiting for him to die. So she wasn't a bigamist. So, tell me, three examples in one family. Were my family absolutely outrageous or is bigamy, in fact, was it way more common than we imagine? It's really unusual to have so many examples in one generation of one family. Now, I've been working with, with family historians to try to get a handle on bigamists who escaped prosecution, to try to work out, are the number of prosecutions just the tip of a very, very large iceberg. What sort of inferences can we draw about how common bigamy was? And only a very few of my respondents had multiple cases to report. And those that did have multiple cases to report had usually assembled a really large database. Just give one example. One individual sent me seven cases of bigamy but that's because they had been carrying out a one-name study and had details of 150,000 people in that database. So just to put that in in context, three out of seven (laughs) is pretty unusual. 
we can't know for certain how common bigamy was. But I'm kind of sceptical about claims that bigamy must have been common for a number of reasons. So, of course, the big unknown is the extent of marital breakdown mm. in earlier generations. And obviously, we've got statistics on prosecutions for bigamy, we've got statistics on divorce, we've got statistics on annulments, we've got statistics on formal separations. We don't have statistics on how many marriages break down without any formal legal action being taken. But I don't think we can just project current rates of marital breakdown back into the past. So one of the things I've been doing is a longitudinal study of a community. So basically, I've assembled a cohort of couples from the 1851 census, and I'm tracking each couple through successive censuses. Can I find them together until I can find a death for or both of them? It takes a really long time. But so far, (laughs) I've managed to ascertain that 95% of my sample were together until death. A handful can be shown to have separated and be living apart and others I can't find still trying to to track them down. So we're talking about relatively small levels of marital breakdown resulting in permanent separation. And there's also interesting differences between those who are prosecuted for bigamy and those who aren't prosecuted. In your family, two really interesting examples there, moving from Nottingham to London to get married and Ireland to to England. Mm. Now, one of the big differences between those who are prosecuted and those who are not prosecuted is the distance between the first and the second marriages. That might sound obvious, but it shows that it's not just a matter of chance whether you're discovered you're having to kind of really make an effort to put yourself beyond the reach of, of discovery. And even then, I mean, I've got some examples where you know, people have travelled to a different continent to get married and they're still discovered just because somebody knows somebody else. I feel like perhaps the reason all of this wasn't uncovered is because they were kind of in a Mexican standoff. Certainly my great-grandmother and her sister, if one of them was revealed, they were both revealed. And I would imagine that the brother, who families are so complicated, because I tracked his first wife. It turns out she married somebody in another arm of my family. So in many ways, the whole house of cards would have fallen down in one go if this had been revealed. So it was in everybody's interest to keep it quiet. Yeah, and that's... A second characteristic of my unprosecuted bigamists. Oh, really? That both of them have remarried. Right. So neither has any incentive to to follow things up. The, the wife is being supported and you don't have the parish authorities trying to seek out the errant husband and make him support his wife. Because that's how a lot of bigamists do get discovered, certainly in the 19th century. So my family, what a bunch. If if I'm going to be sympathetic to them, and I I think I should be sympathetic to them, their options were limited for the women, certainly by their sex. And they were certainly for all of them by their education and their finances. What I will say in all of their defence, all four of those people in bigamous marriages there, is all of them stayed married to the person they married the second time until they died, which suggests that had they lived 
20 or 30 years later, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. And in many ways, I don't think it's fair to judge them. Absolutely. I mean, bigamy is a very odd crime. Most bigamists, bigamy is the only crime that they commit. It's not associated with any other form of criminality. And looking at some of the situations that these people found themselves in, absolutely, you can only have sympathy for them. And as you say, 20, 30, 40 years later, these would have just been divorces and happy second marriages. Bigamy prosecutions decline very, very sharply in the second half of the 20th century, but they decline before divorce law changes, not after. They decline in the 1960s as couples simply started to cohabit openly rather than covering it up with a famous marriage. This has been really interesting, Rebecca. Tell me if anyone else is having a route around in their family and they're they're finding some things that they are surprised by or maybe not surprised by or maybe shouldn't be surprised by. Where's the best place to go for more information on? I could do a quick plug for my book. (laughs) That is is perfect. Plug away. So I've written a couple of books which are aimed at family historians. There's Marriage Law for Genealogists, which kind of sets out all the law on who could marry whom, how you had to get married, what formalities you had to comply with. And then I've also written Divorced, Bigamist, Bereaved? question <laughs> mark, Which is a guide to second marriages um, of this kind. So looking at what the options were for obtaining a divorce and the sort of consequences if people did commit bigamy. Thank you ever so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we clear the fence in a blaze of glory as we discuss all things women's sport. Of course, I'm talking about the Grand National, in which Rachel Blackmore took an historic win at the weekend. I assume it was on mainstream TV, which is more than can be said for the England women's football match against France on Friday. The friendly was moved from BBC4 to the red button. Not so that they could show more people saying the same thing about Prince Philip dying, but I assume so that they could suspend programming to focus attention on the other channels on which everyone was saying the same thing about Prince Philip dying. I don't like to slag off the BBC because, you know, we're lucky to have them, etc, etc. But it's been a bad weekend for a channel often lauding itself on its broadcasting of women's sport. Because another England match it did not show on the TV on Saturday, and sorry to be England-centric here, they also did not show the Wales v Ireland match, was against Italy in the Six Nations. England won by 67-3, to by the way and are top of their group by 10 points. Ireland beat Wales 45-0. France and Scotland lead that group with 5 points each. But what was the BBC showing instead, I hear you ask? Was it more people saying the same thing about the death of Prince Philip? No, thank God, some variety at last. It was a repeat of a 2014 episode of Flog It. Great. This was brought to my attention by Fiona Thomas, a Telegraph women's sport reporter, and she's right, it's a fucking disgrace. I'm paraphrasing here, by the way. Anyway, back to the good news, which is about Rachel Blackmore, who we spoke about a couple of weeks ago after she became the leading jockey at this year's Cheltenham Festival, winning six races. She was the first female jockey to achieve this, and indeed she's the first female jockey to win the Grand National, which she did at the weekend on Manila Times, with odds of 11 to 1. I'm annoyed that I didn't know it was happening, because I probably would have put a bet of about £2 on her, just in solidarity-like. 
don't usually bet on horses any other day of the year, by the way, because, well, I sort of think it's a bit cruel, to be honest. Anyway, let us not detract from her historic achievement. Has she watched International Velvet, though? Good question, journalists. Good question. And if you don't know what that is, it's a 1944 film in which Elizabeth Taylor plays Velvet Brown, who pretends to be a boy so she can compete in the famous race on her horse, The Pie. Great name, Velvet. Great name. Anyway, she wins, but she gets disqualified on a technicality. I don't know if that technicality is that she doesn't have a penis. I I can't remember, to be honest. I did actually watch this quite a bit as a child because I liked horses. Blackmore reckoned it was probably on the TV when she was growing up. So there you go. Scoop. Last year, Blackmore finished... 10th and said of her victory that when she took her amateur license out she never dreamt she would even ride this famous race let alone win it she hailed her victory as beyond belief and said i don't feel male or female right now i don't feel human by the way if you'd like to know what the guardian's take on this is her gender is not the most interesting thing about it it's the fact that 10 of the first 11 horses were from irish stables while we're here talking about good news in a different sport, let's give a little tip of the hat to US-born British skateboarder, 14-year-old Bombette. No, really, her dad is a retired amateur boxer and nicknamed Bomber. Bombette Martin, who's been victorious at the British Skateboard Championships. And that win means she edges closer to a place at the Tokyo Olympics. Well done, Bombette. It's weird, maybe not that weird, that all our skateboarders seem to be a bit American. More weird perhaps that so many of them are so young. All the girls seem to be teenagers. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Hello and welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film that contained a sex scene that made me cringe so hard I think I crushed a kidney, did we watch this week? This week we watched 1996's Thinking Woman's rom-com, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, starring friend of the show, Janine Garofalo, Uma Thurman, and the fit one off Game On, if you can remember that, and early transatlantic success story, Ben Chaplin as well as Jamie Foxx in a relatively minor role. I don't feel bad about calling him the fit one because of for reasons we're about to discuss. But anyway, it was written by Audrey Wells, who wrote a few other hits, including the screenplay for adaptation of a young adult book, The Hate You Give, which was released, sadly, shortly after her untimely death from cancer. It was directed by Michael Lehman, most notable perhaps for directing 1988's black comedy Heathers, so I'd say it had a decent pedigree, no pun intended. <laughs> I think you very much intended d- that pun because you just did a I little I genuinely pun didn't. Dance. I wrote it and then I was like, oh, it's about cats and dogs. And then I thought, well done me. <laughs> Full disclosure, this is another film that I really liked as a teenager and I'll obviously get to where I stand on it now. But the reason I liked this as a teenager was because it genuinely felt to me like it was quite a smart sort of take on a rom-com and it had something worthwhile to say. And Sorry, Jen, to interrupt you, but the listeners can't see this. But the face Hannah is pulling now is why you would want to play poker against her. (laughs) She cannot hide her emotions. I think I also liked it as a teenager because young Jen probably saw something quite relatable in the main character, Abby, played by Garofalo. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially, yeah. it's like a modern day take of Cyrano de Bergerac. And I didn't even really know what that was about until I looked it up this morning. It's a man with a big nose who wants someone to love him, basically. Um, Have you never seen it? you never seen Roxanne? No, no. I know. I knew what oh, Roxanne no. was about, but I didn't actually know it was about that. So, there you go. The story centres on main character Abby, a vet who hosts 
titular radio show, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, through which she meets photographer Brian, who calls in due to a dogs on rollers. Now, that is a sexy name. Can we just stop and appreciate (laughs) how sexy a name they've chosen there? Here's this man. He is named Brian. He's very sexy. My mum's boyfriend's called Brian, so I'm glad it's not a sexy name. (laughs) Anyway, he calls in due to a dogs on roller skates incident in his studio. We have, of course, all been there. He's so grateful for advice that he invites her out for a drink. But wait, he's a stone cold hottie and she's an absolute munter. I'm not saying that seriously. I'm coming back to that. Don't worry. I'm not just saying something horribly sexist. Um, (laughs) She's she's very much the Gerard Depardieu of women. No. Uh, No. Or at the very least, someone with an extremely low opinion of her own attractiveness. Enter neighbour Noel, played by willowy butte Uma Thurman, who she inexplicably convinces to pretend to be her so that she can date... I've written Ben here, that's not his name. So that she can date Brian as a sort of third wheel under the name... under the made-up name Donna. I'm starting to think I understand what Teenage Jen liked about this film. The casual way in which you just called him Ben... I, I, I think I th- I'm not Jesse I'm not going to lie I think I think that there was definitely part of that in it as well I definitely fancied him um he's fucking hot anyway under the made up name Donna and via early morning phone sex violin sessions again that happens to me all the time uh-huh yeah mm. you're really good on yeah. the violin uh- <laughs> But wait, perhaps Abby isn't such a munter after all, or perhaps it's not even important that she is because everyone falls in love with everyone and hilarity slash laboured moral lessons ensue. It wasn't exactly a box office smash, but it did okay, received generally good reviews, and the three lead actors, as well as Jamie Foxx, well, done all right, haven't they? Which kind of summarises sort of how I feel about it, but with some slightly less positive feelings about some of the central characters. Guys, had either of you watched it before i had seen it before i hadn't i am genuinely interested to hear what you think about it because i found myself very conflicted about this film because i think it had good intentions and i think the central message is sort of positive i also think that janine garofalo and uma thurman are quite enjoyable to watch in it but i just sort of think the central message isn't really one that needed telling and it's, it's a bit fucking obvious, isn't it? And it also kind of, like, massively falls down on the fact that Janine Garofalo is a good-looking woman. Like, what the fuck? I sent Mick a variety of messages during this in which I just repeatedly said, oh, God, she's repulsive. I can't believe they let her onto the screen. Look how <laughs> ugly she is. I mean, it's just ridiculous. She's gorgeous. She is gorgeous. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, Agreed. okay, so she's short. Maybe some men don't find that attractive. I can't, I can't think of any other flaw in her. And that the message at the end isn't that she realises she's attractive. That isn't even what the message was. If that was the message, then maybe there could be something positive in it. But the message is she found a guy who didn't care whether she was attractive or not. Mm. And I'm like, but she's really fucking attractive. I don't I don't understand it. I mean, we've sat next to her. She's really fucking attractive. Yeah. It was weird when it started. I was like, oh, five minutes in, I am totally relating to her relationship with a cat. Maybe this is going to be fine. I like her. She's really warm. Janine Garofalo's character is very smart. She's very witty. There are some genuinely funny lines in there. I really do. I liked the way that she and Uma Thurman bounced off each other, although the character's friendship ends up being quite toxic for some in some ways and competitive and like fighting over a man. And I am bored 
witless of seeing women put into competition with each other. But then, yeah, I, I fucking hated it because to me, the central message doesn't work because Janine Garofalo is knockout. And also, yeah, he's really wet. So I think we're supposed to fall in love with him too. And I just wanted him to go away. He's, he's handsome enough, but he's so wet. Oh, he made me feel sick. Honestly, there's something about certain actors that they, I mean, like I have the weird thing about Jude Law. Jude Law, I actually find quite scary. Mm. When he looks directly into the camera, I feel like I'm about to be attacked. I, I don't like him. <laughs> and there's there's something about Ben Chaplin in this that he's so awful that it overrides any idea that he might be attractive. Like, that, not him, but the character. is Brian is just... So cringy. He said, I want to make love to you. And any man that says that can just fucking jog on. It's yep. just... It's not and crafts, mate. That Fuck is off. Face. I think it says everything. Because, like, obviously it is based on Cyrano de Bergerac. And it seemed to, like, spark some kind of thing that happened in the 90s and the early aughts where they did a lot of gender swap things. I don't know what any of these things were called because they were all rom-coms, but... I used to work for a newspaper, so I had to edit enough reviews of them that were like, oh, this is the taming of the shrew, but where the shrew is a man. But it says everything that Gerard Depardieu and Steve Martin, both in Cyrano de Bergerac and Roxanne, both have a really massive, like massive, ugly nose put onto them. As if Gerard Depardieu doesn't look like an old boot enough. He's had prosthetics put onto him to really oh, I'm, got, I'm interested you said that. Sorry to interrupt because I was wondering, Ger- Gerard Depardieu, I was like, that might be one that, that ha- a man that Hannah thinks is, is hot, ugly. No, 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 okay. no, he's no Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> so they've had to, like, they've uglied them up, right? And in this, they've just let her just be like, what? Just like short and maybe weigh half a stone more than a typical woman is supposed to. I don't know. I think- the thing about the thing about right. Brian is also that like I think you're right. We're supposed to think he's this like really really good guy, but the bar is so incredibly low. Like he's a good guy <laughs> because he finds someone attractive for their mind as well as their aesthetics, which is like yeah. I I, I mean normal. We'll never find one of them for ourselves. Chen. Isn't that normal? Isn't that how what most people think? You'd you'd hope so. I don't. For for a decent relationship, I reckon it needs to be, you know, high up there. Also, in fairness to the character of Saucy Brian, he ends up being a victim. They both lie to him and she lies to him from the beginning. And whilst I wanted to sympathise because he has been played, I just hated him so much that I couldn't. And then I felt like a horrible person. So thanks, Brian. I didn't hate him, but towards the end, I definitely found him to be like, really fucking whiny which i didn't i didn't remember i hated him it just cringes the fuck out of me go back to your point about you said um because i'm curious because you said ben chaplin because the first thing i thought about this film is i can't believe there was ever a time in the world where jamie fox played second fiddle to ben chaplin i just can't imagine that that was ever a time and you said that he did quite well apart from the thin red line i can't think of any other he, sort well, of Hollywood no, stuff he's been in. Neither did I until I looked at his uh, filmography today. And he's worked like, really consistently for like 30 years, basically. He's worked in TV and in film really consistently. And it's not all shit either. Just in nothing I've yeah, seen. Yeah, no, I haven't seen very much he's in. Because he was in that thing, Apple Tree Yard. Is that what it's called? A few years ago, that drama on the BBC with, I think, Emily Watson, but I might have made that up. And... 
and I felt like that was like a really big kind of like he hadn't been in anything for ages, but he's worked really consistently. I was very surprised. No, because you're right. I I can't think of very much that I've seen him in either. To be fair, Hannah, it sounds like you would have purposefully avoided anything that he was in anywhere. Either that or the lady is protesting Mm. too much and actually you want him to read you books until you go to sleep slash touch yourself. I own a violin (laughs) and I would jab him with a bow like she did that other one rather than get it out and play a tune for him. To be fair, actually, if I got it out and played a tune for him, he would fuck off. That's why I keep a violin. Just so I can say to people, would you like me to do Forever Jacket for you? Yes, please. Um, yeah, no, there were also... I was just going to say there were also... I can't believe you haven't mentioned it, Hannah. There were also some very obvious plot holes, which I thought you were going to absolutely tear apart. Like, why the fuck did he not realise that Donna, in inverted commas, sounded exactly the same like Abby on the radio when he'd already noticed that Noel did not sound like Abby on the radio? There's a couple of leaps of faith that you have to take in this film that are worthy of Shakespeare. Like, oh, look, that person's standing behind a tree. Nobody can see them. What I would say, and I did want to say, is that regardless of what I think of anyone's performance in this, I don't think anyone is particularly great in this. I will say, whoever wrangled those pets did an amazing job because the cat and the dog in it were both brilliant. Hank the dog. Yeah, I'd I'd disguise myself as a pretty dog to get to Hank the dog. That's why I... I, And I'd watch that as a film. Yeah. Well, although I wouldn't just grab on to a dog and put on a pair of roller skates and allow myself to be dragged into traffic. That, Jen, is a plot fault too far for Fair me. Fair play. I thought that was gratuitous, as I said before. Very gratuitous roller skating, and I'm not on board with that. Can we talk about that fucking cringy scene? I mean, she says it no. was a phone call that went on for seven hours. I felt like I had been watching that for seven hours. I mean, it was cringy, and then he started reading books to her down the phone, and it was cringy, and then it just got so bad that... I wanted to die. It was awful. Don't trust a man who brings tuna fish into sexy times. That's all I would say. <laughs> Jen's skipping. She's skipping. Nice, I did. I did actually want to say because I. I don't know how because I watched it literally last night and I completely forgot about it by the time I was writing this today. But Mickey, you did make a very valid point, which um, bears repeating. That to me, it seemed like it had a decent kind of moral to it. Apart from the fact that obviously she's not in any way unattractive. But then it does just descend into like two women being pitted against each other and it's just yeah. ridiculous. Like how 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 is two drunk women. Yeah, and as how well. has that happened? Like in a film that I think is supposed to have like a fundamentally positive message for women is then just like Yeah. yeah. I think you made a valid point at the beginning, Jen. You said that young Jen related to it and I can Whilst I did not enjoy it watching it again, I think I have definitely felt like the Janine Garofalo character. And maybe part of the point is it isn't that she's not attractive because she, you know, she absolutely is. It's that she doesn't believe she's attractive. So it all starts on a lie. It's a lie that she tells Brian on the phone. He says, what do you look like? And she's like, "Why?" Do you, immediately defensive. Why do you need to know what I look like? And he's like, so I can recognise you, uh, which is fair enough. And she just lies. She says she's five foot ten and blonde. But as Hannah pointed out as well, 
there's no reconciliation of her believing that she's mm. attractive. She has just found someone who thinks she's attractive. And so she will settle for that. And I'd have liked to see her realise actually she is an attractive woman. Agreed. Mm. I'd be interested to hear from any vets on one point. That was also what <laughs> I found to be a massive vet. plot hole. I don't know a huge amount of vets, but of the ones I know, I don't think any of them would let a friend or, you know, anyone do anything medical to an animal in order to carry on a facade. Um, oh, that come they on, let me have were. a go on the tortoise. Listen, what Hannah means is that she wouldn't let an untrained professional put their finger up a tortoise's bum. But that was the only bit that I actually laughed out loud at. Sorry, that says an awful lot about my... <laughs> Less about the tortoise bum fingering, but more the fact she then just gives him an injection. And that's the bit that I think a vet would be like, oh, Completely no, no, missed no, no. that. It's too busy laughing about him putting, about her putting a finger up a tortoise's bum. But, um, yeah. Sorry. The other bit that I think we can all relate to is the drunk photo shoot, because who doesn't want to get in front of the camera when they've been drinking tequila? And that is why we're so grateful for our friends' iPhones and Facebook, isn't it? No, thank that you. That scene is so repulsive, isn't it? Just watching each other hurl themselves at a man, it just, oh, it's horrible. It's really, really horrible. I mean, I quite often... You know, when I'm drunk, look in a mirror and think, wowzers, I wish there was someone here to capture this beast. (laughs) (laughs) For different reasons, though. For different reasons. Um, Does anyone else have anything burning they want to say about this film or shall I um, do the honours? No, only that you should make better choices, Jen. (laughs) I thought it'd be an interesting film to discuss and I do think it was an interesting film to discuss. So there. Um, It wasn't great to watch though to be fair it was mercifully brief at least at 96 minutes long right so i don't think i need to ask this question but um guys do you think it's rated or dated dated yeah dated yeah agreed dated right who's next hello now then treading (laughs) hannah brace yourself treading in jen's footsteps here we're going to watch something that younger mickey absolutely loved but I do think it'll be interesting to know what time has done to this because I think it was a firm favourite for a lot of people. And 30 years ago, Drop Dead Fred was a big film that people loved. So we are going to revisit Rip Mail, Oh My Heart, and watch Drop Dead Fred. Standard Issue. For all women.